0: This is a production of Dirty Mode Media. Ricky Craven already way with two tires. Ricky Craven is a
1: third place car. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and this is the glorious white knuckle, god fearing, spun out, half turned over, and ultimately triumphant racing story of Ricky Craven.
0: Who is closing it down on the leader? He is closing a career
1: altering accident and the physical and emotional turmoil that followed led to some of the darkest valleys of his life. It all combined to make finally reaching the mountaintop of a Winston Cup victory lane that much sweeter.
0: With Craven with the slide up in front.
1: When Ricky Craven traveled to Texas Motor Speedway in early April 1997, his star was on the rise. He had made a name for himself after moving south from his native Maine and was in his first season with Hendrick Motorsports.
0: 39th annual Great American Race. Ricky finished
1: third behind teammates Jeff Gordon and Terry Labani in the 1997 Daytona 500. A 1-2-3 sweep for the organization.
0: What a finish for Hendrick Motorsports. Gordon first, Labonte second, Craven third. From 40th position, Ricky Craven drives to third.
1: Ricky followed that up with a fifth-place finish the following week at Rockingham. Jeff Gordon wins the Goodwrench Service 400. Dale Jarrett comes home in second. Here comes Rudd ahead of Craven and Wallace. Give it to Craven by inches there, so he'll take home fifth. Wallace. Sixth. Texas was new to the NASCAR circuit, but Ricky Craven had already overcome plenty of challenges to that point in his career getting up to speed on a brand new track would just be another one he had no idea what kind of devastating trials lay before him in the days weeks months and years to come just the year before he would survived a spectacular crash at talladega
0: trouble in turn number one mark spins out of control the whole pack is involved cars tumbling through the air
1: in which his car barrel rolled into the catch fence between turns one and two, only to be violently tossed back down the track and into traffic.
0: A savage crash in
1: turn one, several cars involved. Ricky Craven, one of the cars that went up in the air, a lot of damage to that.
0: Barney, by far the uh, most seriously damaged to those cars was Ricky Craven's machine. When it got turned around over the top of Jeff Gordon's car in turn number one, he went up into the uh, safety fencing and then bounced back into traffic and was struck again by another car, some very severe damage there.
1: The accident left him with compression fractures to a couple of vertebrae in his back and he raced in pain for most of the rest of the season. But that was nothing compared to Texas.
0: Uh, it was brutal. Talladega, I described to you, and everybody watches Talladega to this day because it's on YouTube. And they say, how did he survive? And the, the fact of the matter is, uh, I wouldn't want to do it again, uh, but I, 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 would, I would let that happen to you know, two or three times uh, before I ever experienced anything like Texas.
1: There were serious issues with the racing surface at Texas, and in Turn 4 especially. Drivers felt that the banking transitioned from 24 degrees to just 5 too quickly. There were four crashes on that first day of practice, including Ricky Craven's just 45 minutes into the practice ricky was on a qualifying run he'd gotten loose coming off turn two so he told himself to make his entry into turn three just a little bit wider moments later he impacted the outside retaining wall in that treacherous turn four at an almost unthinkable rate of speed Ricky has no memory of the next half hour or so. There's nothing there. He was placed in a helicopter right there on the front stretch of the racetrack. He briefly regained consciousness during the flight to Parkland Hospital in Dallas. Ricky was left with this memory of the flight to Parkland.
0: This is weird, it's not, I don't think it's PTSD or, but I've had dreams uh, since I wake up because I hear this uh, this repetitive sound and uh, I just wake up because I have this repetitive sound and go and I believe what it is, is that uh, on the way to Parkland Hospital, uh, they flew me uh, from the racetrack right from the front stretch to Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Fort Worth. I woke up or I became conscious. In the helicopter, and I have this memory of hearing the, the prop, you know, and uh, and then it was just uh, like a, I say a dream, maybe more of a nightmare.
1: In the split seconds it took for the number 25 Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet to crumple into the turn four wall at Texas, Ricky went from a driver with a world's worth of potential to one struggling for his personal and professional survival.
0: The reason Texas hurt so bad, or the reason it was uh, so detrimental to me is that I hit concrete at 180 miles an hour. And that abrupt stop, uh, you know, it just, it it took a little bit of my life, you know, like, there's a part of it I don't remember. But I also feel like, very candidly, that I was never as fast after that, as I was before, you know, I, I I felt like there was, you know, if I go back to 1991, from 1991 to that point in '97, there were times where I had uh, brilliant speed, and you know, just seat of the pants speed. After the Texas wreck, I felt like I was a, I had to be a much more calculated driver, and I didn't. Compete with that blatant disregard that I think you have to have to be, you know, an an incredible or, or an outstanding driver. I don't know if I ever would have been an outstanding cup driver, but I can truthfully say that I didn't feel like I was an outstanding cup driver after the 97 season.
1: Before his Texas wreck, Ricky had never given much thought to the possibility of being injured in a race car. He'd hung himself and his car far out over the ragged edge more times than he could have possibly counted. He'd even gotten through the Talladega accident. But after the Texas mishap, did he even want to drive again?
0: There was a period of about three or four weeks where I just really didn't care if I ever drove again. because. Uh, I was in so much pain, and my head hurt so bad, uh, even after I was released from the hospital. So uh, there was a certain immunity that existed before that wreck that no longer existed. In other words, I, I, I never ever thought about getting hurt in a race car, probably before my Talladega wreck. And then after my Talladega wreck, Uh, And, and, you know, sort of a warped way of thinking, but this, I think, is how a driver has to think. After my Talladega wreck, because it was so spectacular, you know, it looked like it was so spectacular, I almost, my confidence actually almost increased from that. uh, At least in terms of my invincibility, because I said, well, hell, if I can survive that, I can survive anything. And what I didn't realize is that I hadn't survived the worst.
1: But little high. Todd Bodine filled in for Ricky during that inaugural Texas event and he was battling for the lead when he and eventual winner Jeff Burton made contact late in the race. Oh, contact there. Oh, there
0: goes Bodine into the wall, spinning. Fighting for the lead, he's down at the bottom, he gathers it up. Is caution coming out? Yes it is.
1: Ricky also missed the next race at Bristol but returned at Martinsville. Over the course of the rest of the 1997 season, Ricky had some decent runs. He qualified second at Charlotte and third at both Michigan events and at New Hampshire. He finished fifth in the season's second race at New Hampshire and third at Rockingham in the fall. Despite those highlights, something still wasn't right, and he was incredibly reluctant to tell anyone about it. That was his seat in that race car, and it had to be protected at all costs, even if it meant putting himself at even more risk.
0: I was compromised. I think what, what really ha- what caught up with me is that I would had uh, several concussions over a 12-month period, and I had, I think, four concussions in a row leading up to uh, Texas. You know, it's, it's so uh, there's a price for everything. And I think that I was paying that, and that uh, I was very insecure. I'm driving the butt car for Rick Hendrick. There's no damn way I'm going to admit to anybody <laughs> that I'm compromised because I'm, I'm done.
1: Dr. Jerry Punch, the longtime ESPN pit reporter and a veteran emergency room physician was one of only a handful of people outside his closest circle of influence who was let in on the secret.
0: We've heard the priorities all too often. For NASCAR, it's safety first, then competition, and then cost containment. And no one is more appreciative of the fact that safety is the top priority than the folks here at Hendrick Motorsports and their driver, Ricky Craven.
1: And even then, Ricky wasn't sure he had done the right thing.
0: I did go to one person. I don't know if I've ever really shared this. I think I've shared it with a few people since, probably, probably with Rick. But Jerry Punch will tell you that I uh, was struggling on one of the tracks. And I said, you got a minute? And we went and sat in the rental car. And I said, Jerry, my, uh, since my wreck, if I get a vibration in the car, my eyes, you know, it's like uh, I, I have a hard time seeing. I cannot uh, lock on to anything. I never talked to him about it again. I almost regretted I said that to him because I put him in an awkward position. And uh, the rest of 97 was hit or miss. And And then it kind of all came to the forefront at the beginning of 98.
1: 1998 began as the previous season had, with Ricky behind the wheel of Rick Hendricks' race cars. The situation, however, was far different. 1997 had started off with hope and optimism, but the beginning of 1998 was marked by uncertainty and maybe even a little bit of fear. Ricky somehow managed to finish 14th in the Daytona 500 and then 10th at Rockingham. But then things took a turn for the worse in the next two races. He took a provisional to start 39th at Las Vegas and then limped to a 27th place showing. It was even worse at Atlanta. Where Ricky started 36th and finished 34th. Craven. Boy, that didn't, that didn't break your heart. Nearly a year after his accident at Texas, Ricky was still dealing with a vestibular weakness that wreaked havoc on his ability to drive a race car. He had a phone call to make.
0: What people don't know is that, uh, when I, the first person I called was Rick Hendrick. And, uh, that was an emotional discussion that he and I had. Uh, he handled the way he handles everything, you know, with a lot of grace. Almost immediately, I sold my airplane. I began to make adjustments in my life because I really, you know, maybe I overreacted, but I really didn't think I was going to be back in cup racing.
1: Race fans have made their way to the new hampshire international speedway with temperatures in the 70s it is a perfect day for racing made even more ideal because one of new england's own is on the pole for the jiffy lube 300 the storylines today ricky craven's comeback is a big one magic or tragic what's the story on this racetrack and can jeff gordon three-peat we'll find out Ricky started from the pole in his return to the team at New Hampshire, and then he also qualified sixth for the Brickyard 400 in Indy. Those were the lone bright spots of his return to Hendrick Motorsports. And after just five races back, he again stepped out of the car. And this time, it was for good. He was still having physical issues inside the race car and near crippling doubts outside of it. Ricky was a Hendrick Motorsports driver, and here teammates Jeff Gordon and Ray Everham were setting the world on fire. How could he ever live up to those kinds of expectations when both Ricky and his crew maybe saw him as something less than what he had once been?
0: I wasn't strong enough to admit it to that, but I I can tell you unequivocally that at that point, Rick, my greatest challenge was not the physical element uh it was it was the mental side uh, um, i had i had just listened to so many opinions and uh and i sort of bought into the idea that you know i'm i'm damaged goods and that uh, my best days were behind me uh so you know it it was not the environment when I came back that I had signed into in the beginning of 97. In the beginning of 97, my confidence was sky high, and there was so much enthusiasm. And most of the people at Hendrick Motorsports, at least it felt almost you know, universally that everybody wanted me there. And that wasn't the case when I came back. Uh, and I understand it. I even understood it then, but I, I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, you have people working, you know, all day and night working so hard because they have a love for the sport. And I think in, in some of the crew members' minds, they were like, well, okay, we're getting a driver back, but is, you know, is he 100%? And on the other side of the complex is a team, you know, the 2014 that is just lighting it up. And who would be envious of that? And, uh, and there's, there's so many of those things that, uh, that I think weighed on me, and I just was not equipped to deal with it.
1: There are drivers who need wins, Matt, and there are drivers who need a top five finish in 1998. How about 1988 champion Bill Elliott? Ernie Irvin, he won't crack the top five today. He doesn't even start. Ricky Craven fills in for him. Michael Waltrip. Ricky returned to competition in mid-October. Ernie Irvin, who had battled his own debilitating head injuries just a few years earlier, was still feeling the after effects of a crash at Talladega. Ernie started the MB2 Motorsports Pontiac at Daytona, but turned it over to Ricky just 14 laps into the event. Ricky went on to finish eighth. Despite that encouraging effort, the next two seasons were Ricky's wilderness years, and it showed up in his personality.
0: I can tell you the people closest to me in 1990, second half of 97, 98, 99 and 2000 for about three and a half years. I was not an enjoyable person to be around. I had worked my entire life To win at NASCAR's Cup Series level My entire life I aspired to be a race car driver when I was five or six years old sitting in the grandstand watching my dad compete at Speedway 95 in Bangor, Maine and Early in 1997, as you point out, Rick, you know, first race for Hendrick Motorsports, third in the Daytona 500. Uh, after Rockingham, Jeff's leading the points, I'm second in points. Uh, it all disappeared. I was this close and it all disappeared. So, three and a half years later, I was laser focused on what my objective was, what my message was. And it was primarily centered around convincing people that I was 100% healthy and worthy of the next opportunity.
1: Here's how bad it was. Three tragic accidents in the year 2000 led to an intense debate in the sport about safety. Despite the fact that his own career had been sidetracked by injury, Ricky felt unable or maybe even unwilling to lend his voice to the conversation. Thank God. That was a different time and a different place in our sport.
0: I have to say that I was probably too insecure to be of any value. I was very sensitive about weighing in on safety issues because I felt there would be a perception that if 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 I if I choose to champion safety over performance, safety over desire, safety over being a cup winner, then owners would look past me that I would be, you know, that I would, I would be a, I didn't want to be a spokesperson for safety. I wanted to win a cup race.
1: In the year 2000, his best finish with the fledgling Midwest Transit team was a 15th late in the year at Rockingham. Worse yet, he and the team failed to qualify for eight races, including the season opener in Daytona and the finale at Homestead. Still, Ricky could see reason for optimism. Things might not have been going all that well on the racetrack, but he was feeling better. And he did have something to offer potential new team owners.
0: For the first time in my life, uh, racing wasn't enjoyable. You know, it just really was, it was heavy lifting. But I also remember this tug of war I had with myself that I feel great. You know, I'm, I'm roughly three years removed from the injuries, uh, I led 70 laps of New Hampshire in that car. I led a bunch of laps at Rockingham in that car. That was, a, that was a tiny, tiny, you know, a James Finch type car. If, and I'm not sure we were even up to that standard, you know. We were doing some, some remarkable things. Uh, but I could not convince the world, the racing world, the people that I needed to convince, I couldn't really convince them that I was worthy of another opportunity, like I had gotten with Rick Hendrick.
1: This is where Cal Wells enters the story. The team owner hired Ricky for the start of the 2001 season. Almost immediately, the relationship appeared to click. Ricky finished fifth at Rockingham, fourth at Dover, second at Michigan after starting from the pole, and then came Martinsville. Ricky's late race battle with Dale Jarrett was a thing of short track racing beauty. It was, after all, the kind of competition that was right in Ricky's wheelhouse.
0: All of a sudden, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the moment. You know, it's like, I'm not at Daytona. I'm not at Talladega or Texas Motor Speedway. Tracks that maybe didn't play to my strength. I'm leading the race, and I'm at Oxford Plains Speedway, you know. (laughs) I'm at Unity Raceway. I'm at Speedway 95, you know. This is my forte. It's always been my strength with short track racing, and I honestly remember making up my mind. Not today. Not today.
1: Ricky flashed across the finish line barely a tenth of a second ahead of Jared. Ricky was... At last, a Winston Cup winner.
0: Challenge for the lead up ahead. Craven under top. O'Reilly's got him. At top. Dale Jarrett trying to sweep at Martinsville on the season. Ricky Craven going for his first NASCAR the
1: Cup win. You see Craven him that corner as hard as he possibly
0: could. Is it going to be Craven with his first win or Jared with the sweep at Martinsville? Half a lap to go. Open, banging into the final corners. And Craven rides Jarrett up the racetrack. Here they come off the turn. Ricky Craven is a NASCAR Winston Cup winner. What a finish in Martinsville. Ricky Craven in his 174th start. Gets his first NASCAR Winston Cup win. A man who was basically out of the sport for about a year and a half after being injured. I'd say his comeback is complete today. When we went under the checkered flag, as difficult as the race was, uh, I remember this feeling of time stood still. It really did for a moment.
1: Ricky's memories of the next hour or so are good ones really really good ones
0: so we win the race and it's like time stands still and then i come out of the moment and tommy baldwin had run over pit road jumped up on the wall put his hands in the air it's like the first person i see and i'm like you know tommy's a friend for life he's you know you know but to see one of your brothers saluting you and then uh come down pit road and there were so many people that acknowledged me and uh, I think the first driver to me was Dale Jarrett. How cool is that? You know, I mean, he's somebody I always admired, is, always admired his family. I remember Jeff Gordon coming over to Victory Lane and and just saying, okay, there you go. You know, took longer than it, it should have, but you got it and you deserve it. Uh, I remember Mike Helton walking into Victory Lane like he was John Wayne, you know, just, Just as proud and and strong and, uh, you know, big burly Mike Helton sticks his hand out. And I could see almost, you know, almost felt, you know, maybe I'm I'm putting a little too much Hollywood into this. But, you know, I, I almost felt like Mike was a little bit emotional about it. You know, like, I'm happy for you. You know, you've had quite a journey.
1: A year and a half later, Ricky bested Kurt Busch at Darlington. In one of the most thrilling finishes of all time. as it'll get right there. And this right here, I don't know what kept them from both wadding them up down here in turn t- uh, turn one, but bam, Oh boy Craven really shot out into it. Look at how close this finish is. Out oh! there. Oh! Wow. <laughs> Officially, Ricky's margin of victory over Kurt was an almost unmeasurable 2 one-thousandth of a second. Beginning that day oh God, that and through cool the, one end one the, end the end of time, Highlights from that race will be used as a prime example of NASCAR's glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over style of hardcore racing. Still, Ricky Craven keeps his role in that event in perspective. As memorable as Darlington was, is, and always will be, Martinsville meant even more. After tumbling back down the rocky slopes of becoming a competitive Winston Cup driver, Martinsville represented his mountaintop experience.
0: I, I cherished the Martinsville win 10 times more than the Darlington win. I cherished it more than any other moment in my racing life because I finally did it. And as crazy as it sounds, Coming from a person who has three beautiful children, very very bright, uh, very well mannered, wonderful children, my, I can I I'm pro- should be ashamed for saying this, but my life wouldn't be complete even though I've got all these things to be so proud of and happy. My life wouldn't be complete if I didn't win a cup race. That's how I felt then, and and to some degree I've softened, but. You know, but I've got the cup wins, so I don't think about it anymore.
1: My name is Rick Houston, and I hope you have enjoyed this episode of glorious white Knuckle, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing stories. We'll be back with another one next week. Ricky Craven is tucked underneath Jeremy glorious racing stories is a production of dirty mo media hosted by me rick houston this show is produced by andrew curland executive producers mike davis and jason schultz artwork is by sean sin broadcast audio is credited to mrn fox nbc cbs espn and abc
0: Check out Dirty Mo Media
1: on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Dirty Mo, you're going to do it. You're going to
0: win it. You're going to win it.